Uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to 2 uh, Chronicles, all right? 2 Chronicles. And uh, that's in the Old Testament, in case, uh, in case you know where that is. But if you've got it on the phone, obviously it's easy. But if you have a, if you have a paper Bible, obviously it's in the Old Testament. And it's one of those areas you don't, probably don't read as much in. But in this little part of the Bible, there's this incredible picture of Christ, obviously in the Old Testament. And so looking forward to it. Today's title is called Darkness to Light. Darkness to light, obviously something, something to where when, when your eyes open, when you have what sometimes I like to call as an aha type moment, yeah, it's like, ah, oh, I got it, I got it, I see it. And uh, that's what the incredible part about this little series is. I just want you to see, you know, Jesus made the point one time, he said, he said that is, is these people, they, uh, they see, but they don't perceive and that they hear, but they don't understand. And I, you know, I know what that means because I was like that for a good chunk of my early life because I was always in church. I always went to church, so I knew everything, but I did not become a believer until I was 21 because, because I, they were just all just stories to me or whatever. And so I don't know. It was a, it's, a, it's an incredible thing then to, to take a look then at these particular pictures Pictures of Christ in the Old Testament because it shows us that these aren't just random stories. These aren't just random, uh, you know, folk tales that they pass down, you know, from generation to generation. But they, they have unity of subject to them. They have direction. And they're written over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And when you all see them, when, you begin to, when they begin to stack up and you begin to see where they're pointing... And obviously who Christ is and what he came to do becomes this central picture. And so we've been talking about this over the last, I don't know, over the last few weeks. We included Easter in on it. Today's going to be a little bit different. I'll tell you why in just a minute. But you take a look at Noah, you know, and you have this picture of Noah and a boat. And you have a picture of judgment, right? Sin of the people, judgment, God's judgment coming through the form of water, obviously. The boat, which God told Noah to build. That is God's word, build this boat, and that this boat would carry them, him, he and his family, through judgment waters. So the ark then, the boat, is a picture of Christ. So a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. And we've done this pretty much every week with Passover, you know, with the blood on the door, and obviously all of the pictures that go with Passover. But some of these other things have been multifaceted. Not just one picture, there are many pictures of Christ in these pictures. All the way down to at Passover, you know, you have the bread and, right, the wine. You have the two together. You know, in Passover, you have the picture of how God said that the calendar is going to change with Passover. It's that this is going to be the first month for you. And obviously, the calendar which we use today is built on the birth of Christ. So it's multifaceted. Like last week with Abraham and Isaac and the offering of a son, God was painting this picture, but it's multifaceted. You have this wood that's put on the back of his son. As I've told you before, there are no random verses in the scriptures. They're there to show us, to teach us, to, to help us to understand. So when he put the wood on his son, that becomes a picture of a father putting the wood for his own sacrifice on his son, which was an incredible picture of who Christ is. So you have this parallel, but it's multifaceted. But today is just one. There is just one picture. The guy that we're talking about today, his name is Manasseh. And remember that he, is not, he himself is not a picture of Christ. But what happened in his life 
is, a, is an incredible picture of Christ, but there's only one picture. And so what I want you to do, today is real important in that particular case because today is something you can learn, what I'm gonna talk about today, you can learn, but there's, there's a difference between knowing the facts and then getting it. I've prayed for you. I've prayed for all of you today, everybody, and then all those who are watching online. Lord, if we can get this peace, if we can just get this peace, then we can totally understand obviously, the, the picture of what the, of what the whole Bible is about. And so you're going to see it today. And it follows a predictable pattern that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, you know. And let me go ahead and give you the pattern that it follows. There's always some sort of a sin, right? Sin, consequences, judgment, whatever you want to call it. And then there's something along the way where God provides a way. His word is given. And in order for, for whatever word he gives you, you have to trust it, Right? And then after you put your faith and trust in his way, then there's a changed life. It seems to follow that pattern through all of them. It's going, to fatter, it's going to definitely follow it today. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. And number one is sin, right? Manasseh's sin. Now, just so you understand this, is I always like to take just a little bit of time because sometimes people get confused in reading the Bible. The Old Testament, you know, you have the first five books of the Bible and all of the, you know, different things that go with that. And then, and then you have Israel who was in Egypt, in slavery. God led them out. That was Passover a couple of weeks ago. And eventually they wandered through the, through the wilderness and, they, and God brought them in. This is Joshua. They brought them into the promised land. And so, and so then after the promised land, after they were there, judges kind of took over for a while. And then there was the kings, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and first and second Chronicles. Chronicles basically is just a short name for Chronicles of the Kings, right? So those six books have to do with the kings of Israel. But something that really confuses people is that when the, there were only three kings, of, of a united kingdom. Because civil war broke out after the third king and, and you had two kings after that. So you had Saul, who was the first king. You had David that we all know about. Then you have Solomon. After Solomon, because Solomon didn't finish well. The, and his son was an idiot, okay? And so, so half the country said, we're not following this guy. I mean, this is kind of my paraphrase here, right? And his name was Rehoboam, and he basically, he didn't do it. But anyway, so they broke into two nations. And that's what helps you in reading the book of First Second Kings, especially, is that you have two kings at the same time, right? And so the northern tribes, the ten tribes, were called Israel. They kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Most people who can trace their Jewish ancestry today in fact, those that are Jewish here today, more than likely you are from the tribe of, of Judah. That's why, they, that's why they get the nickname Jews, right? Judah, Jews. And so because most of the northern tribe was defeated real early and they were dispersed everywhere. They're often called as the 10 lost tribes of Israel, right? The northern. But the southern one hung on for a while. And so if you can trace your ancestry, it's probably you're from Judah or from the priest tribe, Levi, all right? So, so when you, again, put all that together, that's what the southern part became. Well, Manasseh was from that southern part, okay? And he was perhaps the most evil man you've never heard of, okay? Manasseh. 
When you see him today, you will see, okay, he is the most evil man in all of the Bible. And it's interesting because you don't hear much about him because he's this obscure king tucked away in, in 2 Chronicles 33. But when you see him, it's like, oh my goodness. Um, even worse than Ahab and Jezebel, if you can get worse. Okay, you'll see it in just a minute. But he was from the southern. And the, I think the part of the problem that made him so evil was that he had a good dad. His dad's name was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a good man, a good king was commended for following the Lord. In fact, the scripture says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But Manasseh didn't. Okay, now, I want you to understand today, I'm gonna to spend a good bit of time talking about the sin part here. Because you have to focus on those things. You have to see those things. Because the good news, that is God's word that becomes good news, you don't realize how good of good news it is until you realize how bad the bad news is. And I just want you to see that. So we're gonna talk about the first part of it in just a minute. Now, so number one is Manasseh's sin. Take a look at 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and verse one. It says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Okay, imagine a 12 year old in charge of his own country, but we'll move past that. But obviously he had probably others to help him until he got to a certain age. And, um, and it says that he reigned 55 years. So we're talking one of the longest reigns, okay, in the history of Israel or Judah, right? 55 years. And it says here is that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And it says, this, and it gives you a list of the things that he did, okay? In verse three, it says that he rebuilt the high places, now there's so much to this, and I am gonna explain some of it because you need to see it, need to understand it, and it also helps you. I like to explain every once in a while just because when you read through the scriptures, it's really easy, like you read across high places and you think to yourself, what's a high place, right? Well, you have to understand what God had told them way back at Mount Sinai and the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple. And like we talked about last year with Abraham, Okay, uh, I mean, last year, last week with Abraham and Isaac. That very place, Mount Moriah, okay, the place where the temple, uh, the temple was built, right, in Jerusalem. Uh, the very place where our Jewish friends today said that the temple cannot be rebuilt unless it's built there. The problem is there's a Muslim mosque there, or basically a holy place called the Dome of the Rock. So it's an interesting thing to see it, but it's that, that one spot. That's the one that God said, the Moriah, which means chosen, which became known as God has provided. The picture we talked about last week, that is the place for, for sacrifices to happen. And it's only one, right? You can't have multiple places. They didn't have multiple places to do sacrifices. That's not what God said, because God's painting a picture. Only one place, that place. It's interesting how it works. But so what did he do? Well, for convenience sake, he just started building these all over the country so that for convenience, you don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem, just go to this high place. They'd pick a nice high mountain that had, probably had a real nice view and you know, people say, I feel closer here to God than anywhere else. Okay, God bless you. But understand this, okay? This, was, this went against what God, what God told them to do. Why? Because God's painting this picture, right? And that's what a high place was. But notice here that he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah 
had torn down. Okay, so he basically was undoing what his father did. He also erected altars uh, to the Baals, that is the different gods. Now, Baal, the chief god, uh, the Baals were a whole system of gods, kind of like Mount Olympus, you know, with our with Greek mythology and Roman, which turned into Roman mythology. Baal was the chief god of all of them. He was the god of, uh, of, of if you will, the Canaanites, the, were the nations that were there before Israel got there. And Baal, Baal was his specialty, because see, all these different gods have different things you sacrifice to them for, right? And Baal was the, was the god of prosperity, of getting ahead, of achievement, right? Of success. Okay, that was Baal, right? Take a look at the next one. It says that he made Asherah, or if you have certain translations, it says Asherah poles. It was a different way that you made uh, different altars. Now, Asherah was kind of like Aphrodite, okay? She was the, the goddess, if you will, of fertility, sexuality, mainly, right? And so a lot of the worship involved a lot of sexual type things. And so imagine this, people look, and so he started building all these things, right? And he started, you know, going totally against what he'd been, been taught and told to do and what the truth was. Now, before we start laughing at these Canaanite gods, right? You know, Baal and, uh, and Asherah, and I can't believe, you know, but I want you to think about it again. Just if you, want to, if you want to take it for its face value, and if you want to understand it, we just don't have names for it today. But if you take a look at our culture, the one thing that is worshiped, more than two things that are worshiped more than anything else, prosperity and sex, right? We just don't have names for the gods, right? We just don't call them by things. But guys, that is what everybody runs after today. They think that they, if they have these things, they will, it'll make life meaningful, but they know, we know that it doesn't, right? We know that it doesn't. Interesting, right? All right, so it says that he worshiped all the host of heaven, right? He built altars in the, in the house of the Lord, which is one of the worst things. We're talking about in the temple. We're talking about in this place that Solomon built that was supposed to be the picture of God's presence with them. And now he's, you know, he's worshiping, all right, altars, false altars, obviously in the house of the Lord, which God said in Jerusalem shall be my name forever, all right? And he built altars for all the hosts of the heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he just started putting them everywhere, right? And then it really degenerates, right? Verse six, it says, and he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom or Ben-Hinnom. Okay, so he's degenerated now to, to child, his own children, child sacrifice. And, and the question is, how do you get to such lows? Well, it's easy, just one step at a time. You got 55 years to get there. Does that make sense? Well, I don't see how that could ever happen. Well, you have to understand the, the, the time, you know, it's kind of like this, this thought of these, these false gods, this thought of, hey, if you make the ultimate sacrifice for this God, then you will have everything you've ever wanted. And they buy into the lie. You know, I watch parents today, they don't actually kill their children, but sometimes they allow their children to be a part of things that in reality, that's what you're doing. 
You're sacrificing them at the altar of hoping they'll be either be more popular or be able to get this or get that. And in reality, it's not what you really want for them anyway. It's an amazing thing. Again, I can tell you the parallels. And just remember that my whole point, this first point, is to take a look at this. And it's the bad news, right? But this is ugly. This is ugly how this degenerates down to where it does. Down to child's sacrifices. He's now into chants like fortune telling, omens. Sorcery is an interesting word. Um, it's used in the New Testament. It almost, it comes from the Greek word, especially from the word apothecary. So it has a drug sense to it. So there's this drug sense of, of, of feeling certain ways, or if you will, almost like these psychedelic trips. It's an interesting thing when you look at the word. I think sometimes more is made of it, but I just thought I'd throw it, just found it in the study that I was doing. And then it says he dealt with mediums, with necromancers, that is those who talk with the dead. So he started going down every evil direction you could go down. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. It says in the carved uh, image of the idol that he'd made, he sat in the house of God, in which God had said to David and Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the nation of Israel, all right, the foot of Israel from the land that I've appointed to your fathers, if only they will be careful to do everything I've commanded them in the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses, Right? So it was a prom these were promises with a condition. And look at verse nine. Guys, this is what makes it bad. Is that Manasseh led Judah, that is the nation of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. You know, and this is what makes it tough. And this is hard to hear. All of us, this is hard to hear. Because you have to remember, we live in a, in a culture where nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. I'm not saying that's you, but that's definitely our culture. And I'll tell you a little bit more about it in just a minute. But it says here, it says here that you gotta remember that Manasseh was not only responsible for his own actions, but he was responsible for leading an entire nation astray. Imagine the guilt that was on his shoulders, right? So in our culture today, I found this, is that I'm not saying you guys in here, but a lot of people are, you know, because you were not created to be able just to go do and live wrong, you know, and, and feel good about it. So what, what I've seen we've started doing is that things that we call wrong, right, we're now calling them right. So now you don't have to deal with the guilt anymore. Oh, I don't see that there's anything wrong with that, right? Well, I don't see that there's anything. There's really no such thing as truth anyway. And so you drift over into this obscure so that hopefully you think that that doesn't affect you, but it, it does. You know, it's an incredible thing when I begin to think of those things. And, and, and the responsibility, because you're going to find out in just a minute when when God changes his life, it's pretty amazing. This is one of the most incredible stories in the scriptures. It's just the most incredible story you probably never heard. Uh, I did this here at the church here about eight years ago, which I know y'all remember. 
and, and I'm flattered, but I do. I, I want you, it's just, it just is powerful. I remember sitting in class uh, when I was in school, you know, doing ministry, studying, studying for ministry, we had an Old Testament survey class. And when this, when this little story came out, I've, I've never really even looked at it. And it just jumped off the pages, this incredible picture. Because here's a guy that, that was responsible for, for the pain of an entire nation and taking them down this slope. You know, and guys, this is sometimes hard to hear, but you need to hear it. We all need to hear it, including yours truly, is that we're not only responsible for our actions, right? We're responsible for all those that fall underneath our influence. And that's, that can be a big thing. Parents, obviously, have huge impacts. You know, teachers, huge impacts. Coaches. I was just talking with a group of coaches out before the service. Billy Graham said that coaches have more impact on people's lives than any other single person. I believe it, because I had coaches all my life, and I look back on them. Some of them were as hard as nails, but I, I look back on them with fondness. Isn't that sick, all right? But, but it, again, I'm, I'm not, this is not a message on coaching. It's a thought on influence. Some of us have huge spheres of influence underneath us. Some of us have very little. It doesn't matter how big or how little it is, is what do you do with what you have? But this guy's guiltiness comes from the fact of 55 years of him doing all these things and taking an entire nation down the drain with him. Now, what I'm trying to do today is that I want you to see how bad the bad news is. You know, it's always like to say, aren't you glad you came? This is uplifting, all right? But because you can't, you will never see the awesomeness of this story until you look at, at the bad news, all right? All right, number two, number two. Oh, uh, in verse 10, it goes on to say, the Lord spoke to Manasseh. And it's not like God didn't try to speak truth into Manasseh's life. That's what the prophets did. If you want to know what the prophets in the Old Testament did, it wasn't those who could see the future. It was those who God would give his word to go tell somebody, the king usually, and say, hey, listen, this is what the Lord says. You're not, you're not going in the right direction. You're not going. In other words, they came to Manasseh and he didn't listen to any of them, right? So this guy really didn't have any excuse. Right? Number two, but Man Manasseh's consequences. You know, and so many times we live as, as if consequences don't exist, but they do. They do exist. Sometimes it's delayed, but they not only exist, but they're usually tough ones. Well, Manasseh hit a brick wall, and here's what happened to him. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria. Now, Assyria was the, was the nation that eventually defeated uh, the northern kingdom. They came down and attacked, and they, capt they captured Manasseh, it says here, with hooks. And they bound him with chains of bronze, and they brought him to Babylon. Now, this is one of the most interesting parts. Um, actually, they have found, it says they bound, him, they bound him with chains of bronze, but they also, they hooked him, which is a, a picture, as a custom of their time, is they'd hook him like animals, right? And it was up to the jaw, right? And then the mouth. And I'm saying that because it's ugly. Nobody wants to talk about consequences. In fact, 
We're trying to even say today there's no such thing as doing wrong because we don't want to think that there's consequences that come with it. Well, obviously this came and it hit him and it hit him hard. In fact, there's a, it's, it's amazing. He is the only, Manasseh is the only one that we have, we, we have this relief, which is basically etching in stone, right? There's this etching in stone and it actually has, if you will, a carved picture of Manasseh with a chain, right? And being led in a parade through the, through the streets of Babylon. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's, only, it's the only, if you will, picture of anybody we have in the Old Testament, right? And, uh, and so this was this picture, and this is where he was, right? So he's led to prison, looks like he's going to be in prison, you know, for the rest of his life. Number three is Manasseh's repentance. Look at this part. This is where it gets interesting. And when he was in distress, I bet he entreated, the word entreated is to pray earnestly, so he entreated the favor. The word favor means grace. It's an Old Testament word for grace. So he treated the favor of the Lord, his God. Interesting. And it says he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now guys, every once in a while somebody will say, well, yeah, of course he repents. Look where he is. Yeah, but you have to remember, yes, there are some who have fake repentance and fake remorse and say, I'm sorry. And that don't really mean it. And as soon as they get away from you, they're gonna do it again. But remember, you have to remember this, is that God knows a person's heart. He not only knows what you do, but he knows why you did it. And so God looked at this, this is amazing to me. And it says that he humbled himself greatly, okay? Humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and look, look what it says here. And God was moved by his entreaty. I find that unbelievable. A guy who was capable of such evil, and yet, and yet God was moved by his prayer, his humbleness, his pleas, okay? And because of it, take a look at this. He brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. He restored him. He restored him back to being king. Now, everybody in the room ought to be saying, well, that's not right. That's not fair, right? right? He got what he deserved. But yeah, guys, but here's the thought I want you to get it today. I've been, I prayed for you, God, let him get it. Even if it makes him mad, let him get it. It's this thought of grace. The nature of grace is that you get what you don't deserve, right? And grace is scandalous when you think about it. You'll see it in just a minute. It goes on to say in verse 13, then Manasseh knew that, I mean, the Lord, that is Yahweh, he was God, all right? So an amazing picture here of grace. And that's the snapshot. That's the picture of Christ in the Old Testament I want you to see. It's the only picture I want you to see today. It's this thing called grace. We talk about it all the time. And you can learn the definition in 15 seconds but it takes a while to get it. 
to get that this is the theme. If, if somebody asked me, Jeff, you have to sum up the entire Bible in one word, well, I wouldn't even hesitate. It would be what we're talking about today because it is what the entire Bible is about. No matter what everybody else may say it says, go find out what it says. And I'm telling you, it's this topic. Grace, a gift that you don't deserve. Now, so God provided a way for him. He trusted God and God restored him. But also I want you to see that it changed Manasseh's life. Guys, it's the same thing all the time. I talk to people all the time about this, this picture of, of a difference. There was a difference that happens in a person's life when they, when they become a believer, when they put their faith and trust in him. It's not just being religious. It's not just trying to do the right thing. It's about putting your faith and trust in his message to you. Number four is Manasseh's changed life. It did change him. He started trying to do things and undo things. It was a tough thing for him because he'd been so negligent and he'd been so irresponsible, but just downright evil. Then he, he tried to start undoing it. But listen to me, guys. I have never been a believer in penance. Repentance, yes but never penance. What is penance? Penance is trying to do things to make it right, right? So therefore, a list of things to do to atone for what you did. Okay, listen to me. You, do, you can't do enough penance to undo Manasseh, right? After 55 years, what's he gonna do to undo what he's done? Nothing. So you don't need to do penance, you need a gift. You need a gift, you need something that you don't deserve, right? You need a gift that's given to you. And that becomes the picture of this entire story. But I will tell you this, anybody who puts their faith and trust in him, you will want to make things right as good as you can do it. It just becomes part of who you are. I remember that. I remember when I became a believer, I'd been in church all my life, I became a believer, I was 21. And I'd start running into people that I'd wronged it's amazing how God brings those people back by you. Hadn't seen them in years, you know, and you're wherever you are and they show up. And then you get this feeling of, hey, listen, man, I need to tell you something. I'm, I'm, I apologize. God's changed my life now, but I, don't, I still know that's who I was and that's what I did. I remember those times, but I couldn't make that situation right. But I could, I could try, right? Well, that's what he did. You see, guys, when somebody becomes a believer, it changes them. Now, it doesn't make them perfect. That's not possible. But listen, I've told you this many times, but there's a difference between wrecking driving on the wrong road and wrecking driving on the right one. Right? Now, he'd, he'd wrecked lots of times on the wrong road, and he was still going to mess up, as you'll see just in a minute but he's, in the, he's going in the right direction now. And he's not gonna do it perfectly, but there's a direction difference. And this has been the, what I call the Christian experience that has amazed me for years. I saw what it did in my own life, but I'm, I think it's what keeps me going, is watching God change people's lives. But that is the difference. Well, let's see what, let's see what happened to Manasseh. The, the most evil man in the Bible, right? It says that afterward, 
That is, after he was restored, he built an outer wall for the city of David, that is Jerusalem, west of Gihon in the valley, and for the entrance in the fish gate, carried it around Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. And he also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. What did he do? Well, he, he began to make his kingdom and Jerusalem secure. You know, you have to understand, it's a different day at that time, but he'd been so negligent in the duties that he had as a king that there were not even walls. There were not even soldiers in fortified cities. They were vulnerable and wide open, wide open. Why? Because, you know, people who are so self-absorbed and want to do what they want to do, they tend to forget their responsibilities and everybody else because I, the, the main thing is I have to be happy. The main thing is I have to get, I got, I got to do what I want to do, no matter what happens to everybody else. So as soon as God changed his life, he began to immediately realize his responsibility of being king was not for him to be able to be king and play king, but the responsibility he had to the people that were under him. Amazing, huh? That was the first thing he did. He had to get them secure, built the walls up and fortified the cities so that they would not be so vulnerable. We could talk a lot more about that, but take a look at this. He took away the foreign gods, right? And all the idols from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain, uh, mountain, obviously in the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. So what did he do? He just began to undo everything he'd done. Why? Because he was different. He was different. You know, one of the great things in this picture, we're just about to be done, but I wanna, I wanna tie this thing together because that's the story. And I want you, my prayer is, is for, for you to get this. Not just to understand, okay, yeah, cool story. Well, well, great, that makes sense. No, I want you to get this and you'll see what I mean in just a minute. So there's some things to learn uh, that I want you to think on as I just walk down through them. Number one, is no one's sin is so bad that God's grace cannot cover it. And that's good news, right? I want you to hear, and this is why I can say these things, because it's what the scripture teaches. That's what grace is, is that there isn't anybody in the room that your sin is so great that God's grace cannot overcome it and forgive it. Why is that the case? Because of what Christ did at the cross, right? Guys, it's a gift that's given to you. It's not something you earn or deserve. If you were to go around our country today and ask people um, if they're Christians, and the ones that say yes, and you ask them a question, how do you know you're a believer? And they start giving you lists of things to do. Well, I try, I go, try to go to church and I, I give to the poor. And they start giving you lists of things that they do, and then they give you a list of things they don't do. But listen, it has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the grace, the gift that he gave to you and your faith and trust in it. Isn't that amazing? But I can say to you today, and this is an incredible thing, that no one's sin is so bad that they can't, that they can't receive this gift. You know, forgiveness is an amazing thing. Forgiveness is, is part of grace. It's not all of grace, but it is part of grace. Forgiveness is a word that we think about and you and I think about. And sometimes we think about the word forgiveness as being such a great 
kind word. But you know, in reality, there's some real hard parts to forgiveness. Forgiveness, and I've shared this with you before, but I, I just constantly want you to get. Now remember that forgiveness is just part of grace. Grace has many components, but forgiveness is a part of it. And so what is forgiveness? Well, let's say that, again, you owe me $100. And after a few months, you come and say, you know, Jeff, I'm just not going to be able to pay you back. I say, let me, let me, let me do something. Let me do you a favor, right? Let me, let's just cancel that one. And the accounting word, the old accounting word for it is forgiving the debt. Now, what that means is, is that I lose you. You don't owe that debt anymore. But somebody did pay for it, right? Who did? The guy who loaned it. The scandalous nature of forgiveness is that the person who is wronged picks up the tab for it. That's not fair, is it? I mean, the person who did the wronging is the one that gets off. And so there's a, there's a tough nature to grace. Oh, it's a, it, forgiveness is a beautiful word, as long as you're the one being forgiven. It's a hard concept for the one who's having to pay the tab, right? Well, $100 is not that big a deal. Let's make it 100,000. Oh, now we're talking painful. Now we're talking, I wanna see blood. I wanna see some prison time. Do you realize what this person's done to me? I'm telling you, forgiveness, grace. I mean, imagine the people in Israel who after 55 years have suffered under this guy and now God forgives him? How can that be right? It's, it's an incredible thing to think about. Number two, nobody deserves God's grace, but we all need it, right? It says for all of sin, the scripture says. Sometimes we compare ourselves to people like Manasseh and think that somehow, well, we're not near as bad as Manasseh, but you have to understand that the gift is the gift, right? Amazing. For, number three, faith and repentance are the only way to get God's grace into your life. You can't earn it or deserve it, right? You cannot earn it or deserve it. The Bible says by grace through faith, right? So you got this picture then that there's nothing you can do. And so anytime anyone tells you some mother message of you've got to follow this list of rules and, and don't do this and that's what makes you a believer, it is not. If we could be good enough, then Jesus would not have to have died, right? If we could do enough penance to make ourselves right with God, then why did Christ die? It's because you couldn't. This is God's plan. This is God's way. Interesting. It's the only way to get it in your life is faith and, 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 and repentance. Number four, grace is never fair. If you're looking for fair, it's just not fair. I mean, but fair is a rough word. You know what happens in a fair society? I just want you to think about this. Everybody gets what they deserve. You do get that, right? Well, I just want it to be fair. Okay, well, let me tell you something. I'm not sure you want it to be fair. It's like the joke I always like to say. What if somebody put some sort of device on your car and for the last 20 years, they've recorded every time you've sped and here's the bill. Probably most people in the room would be bankrupt. You don't want fair, I'm promising you, you don't want fair, right? Grace, grace, scandalous. Especially when you're the wronged party. 
especially if you followed a king and perhaps sacrificed one of your own children. Now you blame him, and he does bear the blame. And now I've heard God's forgiving him. How is that fair? It's not. If you're looking for, I'm trying to get you across this grace message. It's, a, it's awesome, but it's tough, especially on the one picking up the tab, right? Number five, to the recipient, grace really is good news, okay? When you've really heard the bad news and you've heard that there's hope, you've heard that God has given you a way and all you, have, you, you can't do anything to earn it or deserve it, all you have to do is trust it and it's a gift. It almost seems like it's too good to be true, but it is good and it is true, right? I so want you to grasp this fact. So want you to grasp Manasseh sitting in a jail cell in despair, no hope, zero hope. And he turns to God and pleads for something that's not fair, that he never would deserve. It's what you hope could actually happen when you're beyond hope. It's, I can go in all the adjectives, but let me, let me go ahead and finish. And I'm just gonna tell you a story. And then, then we'll, we'll be done. Number six is whenever grace enters your life, your life always changes. You know, I have to be honest, you know, when you think about this, the scripture says there's only one way to get, there's only one way to get God's grace in your life. And that's by putting your faith and trust in it. But when somebody truly does come to know who he is, it changes their life. Their desire is to follow him. And they may not do it perfectly, but that's their desire. Their desires change. It has been the Christian experience down through the ages. You know, this past week, um, you know, I left last Sunday and, and we came back Thursday uh, afternoon. I was in uh, Washington, District of Columbia, and, uh, and we'd gone up, our, I'd gone up for a pastor's conference. And, and, and if, you, if you know me, um, I, I don't, I can't sit still that long. Um, you know, if I sit still too long, I don't know, I feel like, I feel like something's wrong with me. I begin to ache and anyway, so during one of the sessions, I said, I said, I looked at Martha, I said, we, we gotta get out of here. And so we went to the Museum of the Bible. It's a brand new museum that they built in Washington. It's pretty awesome. If you, haven't, if you ever get a chance to go see it, I understand a lot of times it's hard to get up there, but if you ever get a chance, go see it. Now in the bottom of this new museum was, a, was, a, was an exhibit. It was only gonna be up there for a little while. And it was the John Newton exhibit. And you're going, who? Right? Well, he wrote a song and that's what he's known for. And he wrote this song called Amazing Grace. Perhaps you've heard of it. But it is an incredible thing to how few people have ever stopped long enough and asked the question, why did he write that and what does it mean? So anyway, I walked through this exhibit. It's awesome. I spent over an hour in this, this little exhibit because it had all the stuff you know, from his life and different things in there. So I'm walking through it, and I didn't realize that, that he, he had a, a godly mother, but she died young, and he, 
he, he was kind of thrust into life with his father. His, his father was a, was a captain, was a seaman on the ocean in boats at that time. This is the 1700s, early 1700s. So, so he, he started hanging around. He started going on voyages, on trips, delivering cargo and in that lifestyle and stopping at ports, you know, and he, he, he kind of started to generate. And then he found out that he could make even more money dealing in slaves. And so he signed onto a ship that dealt in slaves. Before long, he was captain of his own ship. And this story begins to recount that he would go to the nation of Africa and he would steal people from their families and force them onto crowded boats and then sell them, sometimes to England, sometimes to other places, sometimes they'd go across the, across the ocean to here. Such heinous, terrible, I mean, stealing people from their own families, taking their entire lives from them and putting them on ships where half of them died on the voyage anyway and they just threw them overboard. How do you get to such a low, terrible place like that? One step at a time, ruining people's lives, right? Well, anyway, somehow he had to have lied to himself that it was okay. That's how we live with ourselves, guys. I know that's terrible, but that's how it happens. But anyway, he came into contact with the gospel, right? With grace. And eventually he put his faith and trust in God, and God began to change his life and his directions. And he couldn't undo all the damage he did. But he became a minister, obviously, in the area. He wound up being a huge proponent of abolishing slavery, him and Wilberforce, if you know the names. And uh, he never saw it before he died, but Wilberforce did see the abolishment of slavery in all of the British kingdom. And it was those two that are credited with doing it. But the thing that he is the most known for is writing a little song called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a pretty good guy like me. No, no, no. What's that word? Wretch. Listen to me. He got it. He got it. He totally stands amazed that despite how despicable he'd been, that God could forgive him and extend his grace into his life. So guys, when you really get it, it the only word for it is amazing. So he wrote those little verses in almost no time. Amazing grace, how sweet this sounds like. It's just too good to be true that a guy as evil as I was could be forgiven, that saved a wretch like me, and he was. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Those are just metaphors of a changed life. Lost, found, blind, see. So he's giving you the whole little chart in his little song. Sin, right? Consequences, wretch, God's plan, grace, my faith in him, changed life. 
in just a few verses. That's why it's such a beloved song. And yet so many people sing it and they fail to get it. Oh, they, oh, amazing grace. Yeah, that's, that's nice. No, the question is, do you get it? Have you understood who Christ is and what he did for you? Has it changed your life? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not even asking if you're a member of a church. But has there been a time in your life you put your faith and trust in him and what he did for you? That's God's plan. And all of these pictures in the Old Testament all point toward one event. And this awful story of Manasseh in reality is a wonderful story of God's grace. Only God can do that. Oh God, and so I've got, I've got to be done. I could get excited. <laughs> but I just know the difference it's made in me. And sometimes I worry that we lead people along and just tell them just to, you know, go to this class or pray this prayer or do this. And then there's never ever any difference in their lives. They have no desire to follow Christ. They just somehow think that if I do this, that it'll, I, I, I haven't found that in the Bible. Yes, sometimes people do pray and put their faith and trust in Christ, but it's not about the prayer. It's about the faith that lives in you, right? People can pray and it not mean a thing. It all has to do with the faith that's in here. So yes, you can pray and say, Lord, I know who I am. I know your message of who Christ is, what he came to do. I put my faith and trust in that. You can say those words, but the greater point to that, greater part of that, is that, where your, is that where your trust is? It's an incredible thing, but that is the message of the Bible, guys. And it is what keeps me going. When I see, I've seen so many of you, I just look at some of your faces, and I remember when you came to the church, I remember you'd come up and you'd ask questions that were so off the wall, you know? Because you just didn't know any better. I, and I, by the way, those don't bother me, all right? But then all of a sudden, something turned on, right? It's like a light switch came on. It was like, oh, I can see that. Once was lost, now I'm fine, was blind, now I see. And you watch the difference in these people's lives as they begin to grow past that. It is remarkable. That is what this series is. I'm looking forward to the next few weeks as we continue to look at pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. You know, guys, if, if you are a believer here, if you truly are a believer, look at me. My prayer for all of us, including myself, is that we will never lose the fact of just how amazing God's grace in our lives is. Because when it becomes commonplace, that's when we lose perspective on how awesome he really is, right? So as believers, let's always look at grace as amazing, right? But if you're not a believer here today, guys, again, this is his message to you, right? You can say in your own heart and pray. You can do whatever you want to, but it, it all reflects the faith you have in who Christ is, what he came to do.